You are Locked On Hornets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. In a minute, cuz, we live. We live. <laughs> Most of us are soaring because of the last dance documentary that we got last night. It was excellent. I was hoping that it would live up to the hype. This thing was so overhyped. I was afraid that it was that would overpromise and underdeliver, but it delivered to me in every way. I was excited and we will be talking about that with our weekly guest as he always joins us now on Mondays as we've gone to a 3-day a week schedule. Rick Finnell joins us of the Charlotte Observer, who also has to deal with Michael Jordan in the present day sense. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Rick underscore Vanell. Rick, thank you so much for the time. How are you this morning? Yeah, we are, Rick. Uh, I'm doing fantastic after watching the documentary. I, I was obsessed with this. I was one of the guys that could not wait for this thing to drop. And I saw that you were live tweeting it. Of course, you were watching it as well. Um, you know, just... Overall, I think the bigger storyline, the one that we're talking about the most, it's funny how it's kind of gone to Scottie Pippen and Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause kind of encompassing a lot of what we're talking about today with his relationship with Michael and Scottie. But we're also talking about the contract that Scotty had, I think, more than anything right now, how it was seven years and 18 million. Everybody advised him against signing it. And yet here is Reinsdorf a little bit, but more Krause being made to be this awful guy. And, you know, Rick, I, I think it's probably a little overblown. What did you make of that Krause was portrayed in the first two episodes? Oh, my gosh. I, I hope we do not see, see 10 hours of him be, being such a cartoon character. I think that that's unfair. Um, Jerry was a really quirky guy who did not have good people skills. But what, what for dramatic effect, what has been disregarded about all this is that all general managers, by definition, are people who do unpopular things. They're people who are going to have a level of conflict. Um, I thought it was interesting that Michael said, you know, Michael's quoted at the, at the end of the second segment uh, last night, um, that, you know, looking back, Scotty was selfish in the way, you know, was selfish in the way that he dealt with some of this stuff. And I would agree with that. Um, I'm not painting is the bad guy, but I am saying that Kraus is not the cartoonish person they, he's made out to be. Uh, I think I've said this to you all before. If I were a general manager, I would have a meeting before every training camp where I would tell literally everybody on the team, you shouldn't be insulted to hear that, I, that I've talked to somebody about the possibility of trading you. That's the way this business works. You shouldn't be offended by the idea that you would be con- you would be included in those discussions. It's not an insult. And I, you know, Scotty, as you, you pointed out, he chose security over, you know, maximizing earning power. He wanted to protect himself against the downside. And, you know, the bulls did very well by him at the end. They did a sign and trade after the lockout um, um, ended so that, so that, uh, facilitate the Rockets paying him more. They also have kept him on the payroll as a, as a mentor since then. Um, Scotty Pippen, at the end of the day, was not treated badly by the Chicago Bulls. Uh, Rick, we got a pretty clear picture in, in these first couple of episodes about, one, how Michael Jordan feels about certain uh, topics that are going on today in terms of resting players and you know minutes restrictions and 
and tanking and, you know, trying to get a draft lottery pick as opposed to making the playoffs and, and a little bit of why he feels that way. Um, how did you watch this documentary just in terms of having covered him now as an owner, you know, looking back on his relationship, both with Reinsdorf and Kraus and maybe how that's affected uh, his viewpoint on some of these things in management style when it comes to the Charlotte Hornets. Michael is a competitor um, to the extreme in everything he does. I remember him telling me, you know, that one of the things that he had to um, readjust about himself the first few years that he was primary owner of the Hornets was that he couldn't possibly directly affect things to anywhere near the same degree as an owner as he did as, as a player. Um, I think, you know, once you, once you're on the other side of that table and you realize the way salary caps really do work and you're worried not only about winning games, but paying the bills, um, you have a much better and more global understanding of all this. Um, this obviously would never happen, but it would have been, you know, when, when Michael said that they had the right to keep defending the title as long as they kept winning, yeah, I under, totally understand why he said that. I totally understand why he thought that. It would be very interesting to set up a hypothetical conversation between Michael Jordan at 20, you know, 27 and Michael Jordan at, at 50 something and, see how those two people would exchange ideas. What, what I took from from the first couple of episodes in terms of what we were just talking about there, Rick, and, and you, you kind of tell me if I'm hitting the mark here or not. Michael feels like that the minutes restriction that was placed on him early in his Bulls career was criminal in that he knew that he, as a, as a future and, and present superstar, could affect the outcome of the game and their, their playoff race. He felt it was criminal that they left you know, him in that minutes restriction. What I think he failed to understand is that as an organization, if you don't have that superstar, right, if you don't have that generational player, then it's, sometimes it's criminal not – to try to find that player and, and and the ways that you do that are by getting yourself in a good position in the draft. Well, I Doug, I actually look at that more sim, on a more simple level. Michael was saying that he was willing to assume the risk of going out there and playing before they were absolutely positively certain that his broken foot had healed. And that very much reminds me um, – of Alonzo Mourning early in his Hornets career saying that he was fine with playing with a torn ligament in his thumb. And, and Glenn Perry, the team physician made it very clear to him that, well, you may think that Dr. Mourning, but you don't get to decide that we do. And if you, and we're going to protect you from yourself. Sometimes you need to tell players it doesn't matter what you think about your body it's what is it's what medical science tells us about your body Rick Bennell joining us here on the Lockdown Hornets podcast talking about the last dance I want to continue to talk about Michael Jordan a little bit Rick and Jordan I saw you tweet this out yesterday you said that Jordan uh acknowledged, said that he acknowledged the different way you affect the game as an owner compared to the player as an executive compared to the way you affect the game as a player. Jordan at least said the comment, Rick, but has there been any evidence of his actions that comes to mind demonstrating this piece that he made? 
I, I know that one of the things that um, he's made peace with is that he can probably more affect um, the Hornets on a day-to-day level um, on the business side than necessarily on the basketball side, even though the basketball side is something that would obviously engage him more. Um, if, if, uh, if he closes a, a, a sponsorship deal for Fred Whitfield, um, that has impact. And Michael Jordan, by you know, the will of being Michael Jordan, you know, may or may not be able to have the same sort of value to the basketball side. I think he listens very well. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know him well enough in his 20s and 30s to know whether he was a real good listener then. I'm not implying he wasn't. But I know that people who I speak to, and Steve Clifford and I have had very detailed conversations about this in the past, Michael is really good about offering himself as a resource without, you know, um, like hovering over people and making them feel self-conscious. Uh, James Borrego feels a very healthy relationship with Michael. Um, Mitch said something to me, and I, it wasn't even a response to a question that I found rather fascinating. Um, Mitch tells me, told me, um, that he feels an added pressure as Michael Jordan's general manager that he wouldn't feel if he was the general manager working for somebody, you know, some random billionaire who, made a bunch of money on Wall Street. You know, he, I, I said, really? Is that different? And he said, it's Michael Jordan. It's Everything about it is different that way. Rick, I'll tell you one thing I took away from this documentary, and that's Roy Williams. Uh, he could talk me into anything. I mean, I lo- every time he came on the – I mean, he was just smooth talking. I was ready to sign a letter of intent uh, as soon as he was done talking. I mean, he was one of my favorite sort of interviews besides Michael Jordan in this documentary – uh, any of those other interviews, uh, any of the other characters that we've seen so far uh, that have either surprised you or interested you in this documentary so far? Hmm. Um, you know something? I think I think Reinsdorf, you know, who was just sort of seen as this, you know, sort of distant guy at the top of the pyramid, I think he comes across as interesting and collaborative. Yeah. I love the conversation back and forth between him and Michael um, where you know the the thing, um, the thing where he was talking so bluntly about you know Michael, you know would you take you know if, if I handed you ten pills and and nine of them would cure your headache and one of them would kill you would you take one of these pills and it was just so funny particularly considering the rather harsh expletive he used that Michael said if I had a bad enough headache yeah. <laughs> I think I think one of the worst parts of the Kraus, as you were saying, kind of being turned into a cartoon villain of this story so far. Although there were people that were speaking up on his behalf, it was somewhat fair, I think. But but he is certainly being portrayed as the the villain to Michael Jordan's competitiveness and wanting to win championships. I think kind of the worst part of that is we're letting Reinsdorf off the hook a little bit. And if you this this documentary is not going to address it, but this is happening while. Uh, the Bulls right now are sh- completely shaking up their front office, including John Paxson, who was interviewed in those first two episodes. And so, you know, I, I think not enough blame is being thrown towards Reinsdorf for the post-Jordan Bulls. Uh, for the most part, it's it's been a debacle, a debacle. I don't know if it's that bad. Um, I, You know, Jerry it's has a bad. reputation of being very, very loyal to people. And, you know, Ted Leonsis, by the way, in Washington has the, 
has the same reputation. When you realize that things aren't right and you don't do something about it, you know, you, you might, you know, that, that might be a you problem. We've got more with Rick Bennell ahead in the final segment. He's going to give us his top five Hornets coaches of all time, more hidden Hornets history with Rick Bennell coming up. Plus, uh, Walker and I are going to talk about what our favorite moments from this past season have been in the next segment. But first, got to tell you about this. Queen City Beauty Group is proud to announce their online consultation program. Over the past couple of weeks, we told you a lot about Queen City Beauty Group, how they're the best spa in Charlotte, how they uh, do custom solutions for your skin. They're amazing. But here's the question. Do you have a question about your skin? Are you using the right products for your skin type? Have you been struggling with your skin, but you don't want the hassle of going to a specialist? Truly great skincare is now only a few clicks away with Queen City Beauty Group's online consultation program. Michelle Mosley, an award-winning esthetician, will analyze and assess your photos prior to your appointment, video chat with you on your appointment date, develop a protocol for your individual skin condition, make recommendations to you for products that will help you achieve your goals, and they will follow up with your progress as well. Now, producer Katie is taking part in this online consultation program, and she's reporting to me. She loves it. She's loved the follow-up. She's loved the products. It's all been amazing. Queen City Beauty Group has targeted solutions that will work on your skin regardless of condition. Queen City Beauty Group can remotely treat clients for eczema, psoriasis, melasma, hormonal acne, scarring, and many other conditions. Don't struggle with your skin anymore. Don't let a loved one struggle either. Whether you're just whether you just want to help with mild acne or you'd like to get assistance with a major correction, Queen City Beauty Group would love to help. To book an online consultation with Nichelle at Queen City Beauty Group, go to queencitybeautygroup.com. Click online consultation, Queen City Beauty Group, skincare for all. This is Locked on Hornets. They're running their rookies to Greensboro. They're driving them to Greensboro and then driving them back the same day to play in an NBA game. I cannot (laughs) wait until the Hornets load manage. It's time for more of the Locked on Hornets podcast. We'll get more from Rick in just a second talking about the top five coaches in Hornets history. Uh, We'll do that in the last segment of today's pod. But first, I want to get to some of the best moments of this season. We revealed a bracket, best moments in Charlotte Charlotte Hornets history of all time. But now I want to get to just the way that this season transpired. And despite the Hornets not ever really in too much contention to make the playoffs, despite what our Nintendo Switch alternate universe Hornets says. Yeah, we got to check in on that, by the way. We do. We've missed a lot of games. We just got to wrap I, it, it up. Well, you know, that, that's the thing. Maybe Wednesday, we just need to mention like how everything turned out. All right, let's do that. That We've got a show planned for Wednesday. We can check that box off and uh, excited about that show. When we're looking at the Hornets this year, though, Doug, you wouldn't look at the record and think, oh, exciting season for the Hornets. But they surpassed expectations. This is not a season that is void of some really cool moments. I, I think we have plenty despite a lot of people hypothesizing that this might just be the worst team heading into this season. That was not the case and not even really close. You see them (laughs) just two spots out of the playoffs. They weren't going to make it, but just two spots out. What are some of the moments that come to mind immediately when I ask you to come up with the best moments that happened this past season? Let me just say this first off. I'm glad we're talking about this. We've been talking a lot of Hornets history in this interim period between, you know, whenever basketball resumes again and when it ceased. And I'm just glad we can like focus in a little bit on what's going on now. And I think it all has to start with 
the young players, Devontae Graham and P.J. Washington, when they were named starters, I mean, we knew that eventually this Hornets team was going to shift to the youth movement. Uh, But Devontae Graham and P.J. Washington earned those starting positions, Walker. This was not them giving the, the, the young kids starting positions just to do it off the gate. The, they, they, they earned those positions, and I think that was immediately exciting to me as a Hornets fan. Devontae Graham's 40-point night against the Nets is the number one moment to me that comes oh, up wow. for this. You're, just re- you're ready to say it right now, number one. You're ready to commit to that. Uh, I don't know if I would have said that, but <laughs> upon <laughs> before doing any research, before actually looking at all of it and talking it out with you, at uh-huh. least the first one that comes to mind right now it's the 40 point performance Devonte Graham. I mean, it kind of checks a lot of the boxes off, right? Devonte Graham being a guy that kind of comes onto the scene in a way that we didn't expect having 40. You always like to say that's the narrative point total. That's what gets people talking about you when you drop 40. I Certainly, do say that. Yeah. That's something that you like to say against the nets. It's a good win for them. And I, I it was late, right? It was an exciting game down the stretch. Devonte hits this crazy shot and Devonte gets a victory for him. That's that's one that comes to mind more than any of the other moments. Another one, as we're just spitballing here, Doug, how about the very first game of the season? A win against the Chicago Bulls. P.J. Washington goes for seven straight threes, and it's like, oh, okay, we're just going to draft the best player in the draft. Cool, I'm ready for this. And P.J. Washington would be pretty rock solid as the season went on. Maybe one or two rookie walls, but very consistent for the most part. And I think redrafted like seven overall by Josh Lloyd in a redraft that he just hosted not too long ago on the locked on podcast network. So PJ Washington coming out right out of the gate and saying, no, this was a pick that you guys hit on. I I thought that was was another moment. Yeah, it was great. And you know, and you, you have to factor in some of the draft misses that this franchise has had, you know, in the context of what we saw out of PJ Washington. And it was like, whoa. And we all thought this was a boring pick and he immediately comes out and proves us wrong. And he's had ups and downs this season, but I think from all accounts, this has been a successful rookie campaign for PJ Washington, by the way, how this is all going to work. This, this is a league or a network wide thing. These top five moments from this past season, all of the uh, locked on shows are doing this. And so we're going to kind of talk it out here, but then on Wednesday, you can check back with us. Both Walker and I will do our top five list. We'll reveal that on Wednesday and you can let us know what you think on Twitter at locked on Hornets. I want to go back to the 40 point thing because Devontae Graham, not the only player this season to have 40 points. Rozier dropped a 40-point game in that double OT loss to the Hawks back on uh, March 9th, right before uh, the season was suspended. And that's the first time that the franchise has had uh, two players score 40 points in the same season, two different players, since 07-08. That's the only time it happens Uh, Jason Richardson and Gerald Wallace and now Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham, the multiple 40-point scores, doesn't happen very often for this franchise. And so that was kind of cool as well. And uh, Terry Rozier, you know, it happens in a double overtime loss, but at the same time, you know, that's that's another player who was like, we don't know what to expect from this guy. I mean, you know, it's the return for Kimba Walker, but it's not it's not really a return. And Rozier is saying, I'm not Kimba Walker. I'm not here to replace it. I don't know. It's just a weird thing. Devonte Graham hitting the shot against the Knicks is a moment that should be included. If we're just kind of throwing up all of our ideas on this show, this Devontae is a vomit Graham, segment. This is a vomit segment. I am regurgitating everything yeah. that I have as far as 
thinking of the best Hornets moments this uh, season. Devontae Graham hitting the last or one of the last shots against the Knicks. That was also a moonshot. Um, I also like moonshot. Uh, what about, so not only Devonte Graham, you know, I've, I just had it in my head and I forgot about it, but that Devonte Graham had a couple of these moments. Uh, it was your Indiana Pacers win that you like so much at the beginning that spawned the Nate McVillan soundbite that we have on this. <laughs> I love that moment. He scores 35 in overtime. They get the win against the Pacers. They do that little dribble handoff uh, decoy play that we've seen several times and in uh, clutch moments for James Borrego, who is who is really building out his reputation as being someone. He, this season, to me, represented for James Borrego, this season where we got, you know, when he was hired, we we were told, like, this is a player development guy. And it was like, okay, but is he really? Like, okay, he comes from the Spurs, but what does that really mean? And this was a season where he fulfilled some of the prophecy about what James Borrego was supposed to do as a head coach for the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, I'm going to throw, I don't know if it's top five, but I'm going to throw the fact that the Hornets beat the Heat to close out the pre-COVID. It deserves top five. Yeah. It, 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 I don't even mind if you want to say number one. It, you Whoa, know, given the, huge. Given the, given the context, it's tough to put it number one when the season is getting suspended in an unprecedented way. Okay. Understanding the context, I would get if you think that is just too much weight to say that was number one. But given the comeback, against a Miami Heat team that was going to be in the playoffs and a lot of people project maybe could do a lot of damage in the postseason to have that kind of win, to have that kind of comeback. If you wanted to say that was the number one moment just as far as the team goes this season, I wouldn't hate you for it. It's tough, but right, because the Charlotte Hornets have had some really great wins against great teams. They beat the Heat there. Uh, they had the win against the Mavericks, as you mentioned, and as Rick Manel mentioned, they had the win against the Mavericks in overtime with Luka. No... Um, uh, they were they were down, uh, yeah, they were down KP, but they did have Luca. But then there's there's another win we're missing here: the Hornets drubbing the Houston Rockets, and they were basically full tilt, and they had James Harden at least, and they go out to what like a twenty to nothing start in that game, crazy. Uh, I don't think they had Russell, if I'm not mistaken, to. Eh, who needs Let them? some air out of that moment, but <laughs> I said, all my, I did, I did hedge there. I said, look, you have James Harden. That's all you need, by the way. Yeah, I mean, they, they, by the way, last season they didn't have Russell sides. and they did all right. You know, that's true. You got James Harden. Yeah. That's your offense. Yeah. Save it as much as you like. I'm here for it. I'm cool with that. If you want to salvage that moment, I am here for it. R- Russell would not have prevented 20 to nothing. I'll just say that. Uh, that's how I good the Hornets that. are. I know. I, I completely agree with that. I want to go back to the heat game real quickly. I talked with John Fokey on uh, the wake up call. I think it was last week. And he mentioned how that was kind of forgotten about. And he's watched that game quite a few times because we just, we, we forgot about it because the NBA season was suspended because we haven't had a basketball game since then. And we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and how that affects the NBA, whether we're going to get regular season and postseason action once again this year. It's like, Oh wait, the Hornets may have had their best moment of the season in a way that during the game, the rest of the season was suspended. And it's funny to hear John Fokey talk about that. I don't know if I want to tease anything. There could be another conversation coming up with John Fokey in the future. Um, you're going to have to stay tuned within the next couple of days um, or not. I don't know. I could just be making it all up. We tend to do that here on the podcast. Uh, by I the way, was- by the way, when Devontae scored 40 against Brooklyn, they were missing a pretty key player by the name of Kevin Durant. Okay. So, you know, are we just going to discount the 40 point uh, performance by Devontae because Brooklyn didn't have Kevin Durant? I don't think so. 
Uh, I didn't go on record saying they were at full tilt, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> I didn't yeah. say they were on full okay. tilt. I said they were almost. See, I always say almost because that way I just protect myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the heat moment is the best. Almost. That's what I think. Uh, when we go back and look at some of the best moments, uh, I want to hear from you guys. Tweet us at Lockdown Hornets. Some of the best moments you think have happened this past season. You can tweet at both of our personal accounts as well at Walker Mail and, and uh, at Doug Branson. Hello, Thanks wait. to Rick Bennell for joining us in the first segment of this episode. Uh, took a little bit of a break. Wanted to make sure that we mentioned what the Locked On Podcast Network is doing. Every team is going to be discussing the top five moments of the season as it transpired. But we're going to go back to Rick next to talk about the top five Hornets coaches in franchise history. A lot of top five things. A lot of rank radio, baby. It's what we're best at. We're going to talk about it more next on the Locked On Hornets podcast. But first... So many of us are in the same boat right now. You're probably a lot like me. You're living on Postmates. I mean, you are doing, you are, it's takeout city out there, baby. You're probably thinking about what to eat for dinner while you're eating lunch. I know I do. I love food. That's why I love using Postmates. They deliver food from every restaurant that I can think of right to my door, but they don't just deliver burgers and sushi. No, no, no. They actually make life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery as well. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. Postmates can get it to you. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites. Get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100. That's a Benjamin of free delivery credit for your first seven days to start your free deliveries Download the app and use code LOCKEDONNBA. That's all one word, LOCKEDONNBA, for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. This is Locked on Hornets. Decoys all over the place. They've got everybody down at the rim. Ball goes into biz. They do like an XFL style where the wide receiver runs to the line of scrimmage, except it's with Devontae Graham. He picks up a foul. I don't care what you say, Nate McMillan. More like Nate McVillain. Get out of here. Quit whining about the officials. You got plenty of calls. The Hornets got a call at the end of the game. I thought it was fair. Hornets win. It's time for more of the Locked on Hornets podcast. We've got insight with the exit of Alonzo Mourning from this franchise. We got Stevenson was acquired by the Charlotte Hornets franchise. We went through some of the better moments in our brackets. We got the best quotes from Rick Bennell. Now it's time to go down the list and rank the best coaches, the best head coaches of all time within the Charlotte Hornets history. Uh, Rick, wherever you want to start, the floor is yours. Well, um, you know, this wasn't easy, but when we, I was thinking about this, I was thinking if I had to rank the five best coaches who've coached in Charlotte as NBA head coaches, um, I think my list would look like this. Number one, and I know not everybody would agree with me on this. Oh, so we're going, wait, we're going straight to number one. Oh, you're right. We'll, we'll, we'll have to work it the other way. That's, I keep forgetting dramatic effect, guys. I got, listen, I've got the <laughs> reveal sounder. So, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you reveal number five, we'll hit it. Okay. Uh, Number five, Bernie Bickerstaff. <laughs> we start with a Bobcats head coach. Um, the asterisk that has to go next to Bernie is um, he was simultaneously um, head coach and general manager. Um, Ed Tapscott came up with the idea that um, there's always like a lot of knocking heads between 
the coach of an expansion team who knows he's been hired to get fired and the general manager. And he thought that if the one person actually had both jobs, um, you would have a more forward thinking view of what expansion would be like. That's exactly how Bernie did it. I don't think he gets enough credit for juggling the, those two jobs with a sense of grace. Um, you know what Bernie did that an awful lot of people in that situation wouldn't do? He never worried about how he looked. Um, he never spent money in the short run to make the team a little better that would have hurt them um, in the long run cap-wise. Um, Bernie understood what expansion was and wasn't, and he had a sense of humor, a sense of vision, and because they were so god-awful then, I don't think people understood how well he managed that difficult situation. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it takes a certain level of pride uh, to deal with that with that situation. You have to have a little bit of an armor on. When you said uh, coach and general manager, it, it reminded me that we saw a former Bobcats uh, front office official in the documentary Last Dance. We saw Rod Higgins, a couple of Rod Higgins. And it made me think, like, there probably are going to be some Bobcats fans uh, that or that started following the franchise when they were the Bobcats that are going to watch this documentary and go, yeah, that's weird. There are a lot of people from the Bobcats on this in this thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Buzz Peterson, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, great stuff. Bernie Bickerstaff making the list. All right. Number four, the number four best coach in Charlotte Hornets history, according to Rick Bennell is Dave Cowens. Dave, one of my faves. Uh, Dave had, um, Dave managed people pretty well, but you know, the strange thing about Dave was that for a guy who had a reputation as a player, of being such a tough guy, it was frustrating for some of the people he worked with that Dave would not take issues on head on. Um, He was not very good, for instance, at telling Mace to shut up and sit down. Um, It's um, Dave uh, felt very underappreciated here. He felt like they weren't taking care of him contractually. And he was really good for a period of time. And then it was very obvious that um, he wasn't happy and did not want to be here anymore. Yeah, had that weird, kind of weird midseason exit. The first, That was the first, was that the first midseason exit for a Charlotte Hornets coach? Or was there one? And, unless you talk Dick Harder, Gene Littles as well. They both <laughs> coached. Oh, Dick, yeah, uh, Dick got fired in the middle of the second season, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was one case. There was a weird, and I don't know if this was intentional, but there was a weird Celtics Hornets through line uh, historically in that original run. You had Cowens, you had Silas, uh, you had the fact that they got the first series win against Charlotte. You had Robert Parrish playing a pretty featured role in a in a Hornets playoff series. Uh, so weird Boston Charlotte connections early on. And Larry Bird attempting to be the guy who. Uh, bought and ran the second expansion franchise. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, crazy. That would have been, oh, man, totally different historical, I think, take, you know, if, if that happens. Jeez. All right, third best head coach in Hornets history, according to Rick Bennell. Larry Brown. No fanfare for Larry. Who's going to say we, we've had some Larry Brown bashing yeah, on the show. A little awkward to do the fanfare yeah. for Larry. 
because because we've had Adam Morrison speak against Larry Brown. I think we we had actually Ryan Holland speak a little bit glowingly of Larry and the fact that it was bad present time, but the fact that you look on it in hindsight, Ryan actually gave Larry Brown some credit because he carved Ryan Holland's role out, and that's how he was successful in the NBA. Why does he come in at number three for you, Rick? Well, Larry was an absolute genius, um, you know, in terms of strategy. Um, he would... I had um, remember that he re- <laughs> um, remember that he he took over a complete mess, um, and Larry's offense was so complex and evolved at such a fast rate that the advanced scouts from other teams hated him being around because it meant that you constantly had to scout the Hornets because what you saw a week ago was not the same thing that they were running. <laughs> Hmm. And I always thought that that was really interesting. The reality with Larry, and this has been true everywhere he was, but I think unfortunately it got kind of amplified with age. There is always an expiration date on Larry being your coach. The way I've always described Larry, it's three stages. He makes you better. He makes you crazy. He makes his exit. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect too. And and you can look at it and how quickly Larry turned the Bobcats into a dangerous defensive team is shocking. I mean, they just could not defend anyone. Then all of a sudden, Larry Brown comes in and and writes the ship defensively. But I think you know if we if I took any lesson from the Steve Clifford era, it's that ultimately the the messages that and Clifford was I guess like kind of Larry Brown lights in that it wasn't as devastating a message and as quickly but that miss that message if it doesn't come with playoff series wins eventually just wears out and and players stop responding to to that messaging and, and Larry Brown just seems like it happens quicker with his organizations than some others that come in and preach fundamentals and defense you know Doug when you said it it seems shocking how quickly they, they looked, you know, smarter and better organized. Maybe it was because, Oh, I don't know. Sam Vincent wasn't coaching them before he, before he took over. Well, I thought Vincent was going to be number two. I was ready for yeah. <laughs> Did you think it was going to be one of the two <laughs> last names revealed Sam right. Vincent? You can keep holding out hope. Uh, the second best coach in Charlotte Hornets history, according to Rick Manel is. Paul Silas. Shocker. Thought he was going to be number one. He's number one in my um, <laughs> You know, coaches have different strengths. And I've always thought of Paul as a, a terrific psychologist. Um, I've compared him at times to, the, to why you hire Dusty Baker to fix things as a baseball manager. Um, he... He understands that one of the really brutally rough things about the um, about the NBA is the schedule and how it it beats you down. And Paul was really good at managing people without them, you know, shutting him off, without him getting tired of of his voice. Uh, he did this twice here under very difficult circumstances both times. Um, Paul, you know, nobody will confuse him as somebody who has a, a playbook with you know, 92 um, different plays in it. But Paul got people to play, and Paul got people organized. And Paul was just a fantastic industrial psychologist. All right, Paul Silas coming in at number two, being here a long time and a couple of different stints. The number one now, coach 
of all time in Charlotte Hornets history, according to Rick Bennell, is Steve Clifford. I'm totally with that. I'm glad to hear Steve Clifford's name. I share the same kind of love. Why is Steve Clifford the best coach in Charlotte Hornets history, Rick? Um, Part of being a coach is being a strategist. Part of being a coach is being a psychologist. Cliff was really good at both. Um, Ed Tapscott used to tell me that, you know, when, when he was, um, when he had to be interim coach um, with the Wizards, he told me that the biggest thing he learned about coaching an NBA team is you do it with their permission. Um, that means that you need to hold them accountable in such a way that they believe that you, they are accountable to you without them just tuning you out. Steve was very good at that. Um, Steve could have difficult conversations with people without, you know, without alienating them. Um, Steve under, made, made the best player ever on this team, Kemba Walker, better. Um, he made Jeremy Lamb dramatically better. Um, it's interesting that there is this sort of backhanded, that staff wasn't good enough at player development. Um, they did it differently than the current administration does, but the idea that player development was disregarded when Cliff was here. That's not fair at all. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it'll be a crime if Steve Clifford, who was an assistant coach under uh, or, or with organizations that had some real superstars, I mean, Dwight Howard, Tracy McGrady, like he knows what a superstar is and what it can do for your franchise. And I think he, he knows how to coach uh, those superstars. And so I think it'll be a real crime if, if he finishes up his coaching career, not having that opportunity to be with an organization that, that puts a true generational talent in his hands and says, go, go win me something. People like Steve Clifford, because he's authentic. I have always said that what's cool about Steve is Steve as an NBA head coach, never stopped, ne- never forgot what it's like to be a high school basketball coach slash special ed teacher in New England. That was Rick Bennell joining us on this episode of the Lockdown Hornets podcast. Great stuff from him on the Last Dance documentary and the ranking of the best coaches in Charlotte Hornets history. Once again, always enjoy the time. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Rick underscore Bennell. Rick, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day.